my name is Rob. Um, nice to be with you this morning. I've uh, been a member at Grace since 2010 or so. I'm helping uh, lead some of the discipleship ministries at Grace uh, this year, so it's a pleasure to, to do that. Darren did an awesome job. It is a special uh, treat <clears throat> to have the youngsters of Grace uh, among us this morning. We're delighted that you guys are here. Um, I want you guys to know, I want your moms and dads to know, you, you can do this, right? It's a big church. You, you got it. It's, it's okay if it's a little bit more fidgety than normal. I think Susan has uh, provided you guys with some resources for taking notes and drawing, and there will be some things we talk about along the way that would be very natural for you uh, to, to draw. So we're, we're just really delighted that you guys are here. As Kenny said, we are in the middle of a, a sermon series on why we gather as the church. And um, so to this point, we've covered that we gather as a temple, uh, we gather as a family, we gather last week as a school, and uh, today's emphasis, today's theme is on the fact that we gather as a, as a hospital, uh, particularly with the view to help one another heal from sin, to leave sin behind, and to grow in, in holiness. We want to be holy as our Father in heaven is holy. Of course, our great problem is that we are not holy, right? Some of the metaphors for, for sin in Scripture include things like uncleanness, moral leprosy, spiritual cancer. We are, as Kenny said a few Sundays ago in uh, the first series, or the first sermon in this series, we are spiritually terminal. Excuse me. So that means that a significant aspect of why we gather together is to administer and receive the medicine and the surgery of worship and the word and fanning the flames of faith and, and repentance. That's what we do when we gather every Sunday, right? In larger contexts like this and smaller contexts like grace groups as well. So our, our goal this morning, we're going to proceed in three major chunks, right? Three major steps into this discussion. The first one, we want to try to get our bearings, broadly speaking, on what, is, what does it mean to be spiritually healed? What is spiritual health? What does that look like? How do we, how do we pursue it? Just broadly speaking. Secondly, uh, will be our consideration of how the gathered church is a context for helping one another heal from sin and grow in grace. And then thirdly, uh, we'll consider some of the specific forms of medicine that we can bring to one another when we gather. Just so you know, um, after point number two and before point number three, We'll pause, our worship team will come back up, lead us in, in, uh, in another, uh, another song, and then we'll finish uh, the third point after that. So with that in mind, uh, pray with me if you would, and then we will uh, dive into this morning's message. Heavenly Father, we ask <clears throat> that you would equip us now to know a little bit more the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and so fill us with yet more of the fullness of God. That is the medicine that we require, and you love to give it. So would you dispense some now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So what does this uh, spiritual healing look like? Um, the gift of salvation is a, is a singular gift, and yet it has many facets. And because it's multifaceted, it would be, it would be possible for us to be reductionistic. And when we, when we think about what it means to be saved, <clears throat> excuse me, to experience spiritual healing if we neglect one facet in favor of, of another. To consider just one brief example of the multifaceted 
nature of the gift of salvation, just consider what Paul uh, says here in Romans 5.9. He says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And, and so it would be reasonable to wonder, wouldn't it, uh, which is it? Have we been saved or will we be saved? And the answer, of course, is yes. <clears throat> if we fail to recognize in Christ that salvation has past, present, and future dimensions, we will struggle with why we sometimes struggle, and we'll stumble over what uh, Paul Tripp and Tim Lane, in their book, <clears throat> How People Change, what they call the gospel gap. What they mean by the gospel gap is when you think about the elements of, of salvation, justification, sanctification, and glorification, the, the, the ones on the um, outer ends of the continuum, justification and glorification, are a little bit easier to reckon with conceptually because they are definitive. So the moment a person first trusts Christ savingly, that person is justified, and they're as justified as they're ever going to be. You can't get more justified than that. And glorification, when we see Christ face to face and our faith is perfected, we're fully conformed to the likeness of Christ, also definitive, but in between justification and glorification is the sometimes messy pathway of sanctification. Sanctification is experiential. It progresses over the course of time. Sometimes it's three steps forward and two steps back. There's stumbling and fumbling along the way. And we're not necessarily sure how to apply the gospel to that aspect of spiritual healing, right? Uh, I was reminded <clears throat> uh, this week of a, of a, of a rubric to, to kind of organize these elements, these aspects of salvation that I heard many years ago, I couldn't remember, it, it's, it was, it was uh, you know, I couldn't remember if it was the Navigator's Discipleship Curriculum or Crusade or somebody else, and so I emailed Don Allen over the weekend. He came to the rescue, and he pointed me to exactly where it is in the Navigator's Discipleship Curriculum. Now, maybe it's in other discipleship curricula as well, but, but in, a, in, in a nutshell, what they summarize very helpfully these past, present, and future dimensions of our, of, our sanct or, excuse me, of our salvation, they point out in justification, thank you very much. I, I, I brought a bottle of water and I left it in the, in, in the aisle. Uh, in justification, the penalty for sin is canceled. In sanctification, the power of sin gets progressively weakened. And in glorification, the presence of sin will finally be removed. So what that means is that when we're talking about sanctification, which is what we're mainly going to focus on in terms of spiritual healing today, our sanctification is part of what we sometimes call the already not yet. Okay, Already, right? a believer is already justified, can't get more justified than he or she already is, and also is not yet fully experientially sanctified, is not yet glorified. So we live in what is sometimes called the overlap of the ages. The blessings of the kingdom have already begun to be enjoyed and are not yet fully enjoyed in the life of the believer. I use uh, an illustration to help try to, to, to explain this phenomena, this already not yet phenomena sometimes. Um, years ago, well, my wife has um, 
she's always been a teacher. Teaching has always been something she is gifted at and equipped uh, for doing and, and loves to do and does well. This is a picture of her with a homeschool co-op uh, that she was teaching, uh, I don't know, four or five years ago, something like that, uh, up, at our, up at our house. A lot of smiling Grace kids' faces looking back at you in that picture. They're not so little anymore. But uh, in any case, <clears throat> she's, uh, she's teaching this homeschool co-op, and on one particular occasion, the kids in the class notice that right outside their, their little learning setup, our cat, uh, Minerva, is having a face-off with a rather large rattlesnake. And so my wife, right, she immediately jumps into mother bear mode, right? She's got to take care of these. There's, I, I, was at, I was at Biola. None of the neighbors were around. And so immediately she jumps into, into protect mode. The lesson stops. She's trying to keep the kids. Of course, they want to see right? What's going But she's trying to keep them at bay and, 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 and protect them. And, and a number of things that, that, that she tries to do in order to protect them. And, and the rattlesnake is kind of, you know, coiling up and then moving away. And, and basically she realizes this needs to end now. It's not enough to scare the rattlesnake under the barn. And then he comes out later during recess or something like that. So the long and short of it is she runs and grabs a flathead shovel and like a very agile mongoose, she's tangling with this rattlesnake and then whoosh, strikes a blow. And, uh, <clears throat> yay. That's a big boy. That's, that, that, that's one of them there rattlesnakes that if you're going to strike a blow, you better not miss. My wife would have done, would have done just fine as a pioneer woman. Uh, okay, there's a point to this story. The point is, uh, she, did, she did win the, uh, the, the, the ongoing and lasting admiration of her, of her sixth graders as, as a result of this, but she also told them in the moment after head was severed from body, don't you dare get near that snake. Don't you dare try to reach down and touch that snake. Because everybody knows, at least every adult knows, in the moment after head is severed from body, if you reach down and try to pet that snake, what will it still do? It'll strike. <clears throat> uh, some, some studies, I, I'm not a scholar, Doug Axe, I probably need your help here if, if, if you're around, but, but, but I, I read in a couple of places that, that, that some snakes up to an hour after their decapitation can still strike. Is, is that roughly true? No idea, okay, well... If Doug Axe doesn't know, I'm confident the rest of you don't. So we're going <laughs> with uh, up to an hour. <laughs> okay. Um, here, okay, here's the point. Um, there's a difference between the death blow and the death throws. After the death blow, the outcome for the snake is certain, right? Its doom is sealed. But if you mess with it in its death throes, it will still strike, still attempt to. Okay, so what's the point for us this morning? At the cross and the empty tomb, world, flesh, devil, received their death blow. Received a death blow that you and I can't give to them. And yet, <clears throat> and yet in the aftermath of that, we all live in this era, the already not yet, what we could call the death throes 
of the world, the flesh, and the devil. They'll still tangle with you. They'll still strike. They're trying to take down and harm the faith of as many as they possibly can. So what we're doing in sanctification, let's, uh, we'll take that down, as fun as it was to look at. Kids, if you wanted to, you could draw, um, uh, uh, not my, no, no, not. In light of Genesis 3, you could draw an image of the fulfilled promise of Jesus Christ crushing the head of that serpent, even as he absorbs its blow. Uh, so what we're doing in sanctification, it, right, while, while Jesus is the one who administers the death blow, in sanctification, you and I as believers are now called on to participate in the putting to death of our own sin. We can only do that because of what he has already done for us, because of the way that he has forgiven us, because of the way that he has freed us from the bondage of sin and given us his Holy Spirit. And yet, because he has done that, we can participate in the putting to death of our own sin. Look at what uh, Romans 8.13 says. If you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So you have to put to death the deeds of the body, but we do so by the power of the Holy Spirit. Came across, well, I actually came across this years ago, a book by a guy named Chris Lungard entitled The Enemy Within. It's an excellent distillation of some of John Owen's uh, material on the mortification of sin. Here's what he says about Romans 8.13. I thought it was helpful. He says, in your struggle against sin, never forget your duty, but neither forget the power of the Spirit. The killing of the flesh is your duty, but it is his work. In other words, we can only put the old self to death by the Spirit. It is true that we strive with the means of grace that God has given us, but we do so while relying on a power that comes from him, okay? Now, sometimes, <clears throat> sometimes in, this, in this pursuit of spiritual growth, spiritual health, increasing holiness, sometimes we find, we find the headway difficult, right? We find stiff winds in our face because uh, to, to, to continue uh, appealing to, to this author, Lungard, he, he points out in another section of, of his book that, that, that sometimes the deception of sin would lead us to separate the design of grace from what he calls the remedy of grace. I'll let him give it to us in his words. The flesh works to make you forget the design, the design of grace. What is that? The design of grace is to make you holy. That's what you're saved for. Saved to be holy like he is holy. And think instead only of the remedy of grace. What's that? If you sin, you will be forgiven. That's true. If you sin, you'll be, right? If you're, if you're in Christ, you sin, you'll be forgiven. That's true. But by causing us to separate the purpose from the remedy, he points out that the flesh would have us believe only what amounts to half a gospel. In other words, the deceitfulness of sin goes to work in our lives in such a way as to usher us along in pathways that are increasingly careless about our, about our sin, careless about reflecting uh, the character of Christ. So if we want to grow spiritually, there's kind of a two-step <clears throat> procedure that we have to, uh, have to invoke here. And it's, it's really like flip sides of the same coin. Colossians 3, 
would be a wonderful passage to look at. We don't have time to do that in detail, but I just mentioned that as a point of reference for you later on uh, this afternoon. But, but essentially, what, what a passage like that is getting at is that as we pursue this path of spiritual health and increasing holiness, there is, on the one hand, there's a necessity by which we would say no to sin, by which we would put off the old self, by which we would put sin to death. And that's not, right, putting something to death probably is going to hurt at, at times, right? It's not, not, not going to be easy to do. What we certainly cannot do <clears throat> is kill sin by feeding it. Right? You can't, you, you can't sin, kill sin by, by nourishing it, by offering it a little bit of this and a little bit of that. So, so on the one hand, there is a saying no that, uh, to sin that is, is absolutely required. And the flip side of that, the companion to that, is that there must also be at the same time, a saying yes to Christ-likeness, a saying yes to putting on the new man or the new self or the character of Christ. This is what 2 Corinthians 3, <clears throat> 18 is, is getting at here, right? Paul tells us, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. So this is, right, the, it's not what we're turning from, this is what we're turning to, Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In other words, in other words, what Paul's telling us here is that we become like him, a little more like him, as we draw close to him in adoration of him. Where does adoration of the Son come from? That comes from the Holy Spirit. Right? That's the power of the Spirit that equips us not only to say no to sin, but more and more so, yes to Jesus. Adoration, delight, enjoyment, satisfaction. So it's true that we must say no to sin in our pursuit of spiritual health, but we don't say no in a vacuum. We don't say no in the abstract. We say no to sin for the sake of something superior, better love, better joy, better intimacy, better care, better health. The best way to do both Sorry, I'm going to quote him one more time. It's just really, really too good. The best way to do both, Lungard says, is to become increasingly fixated on the cross. Okay? Look at how the cross balances both the no to sin and the yes to Christ's love. You can only keep the rottenness of sin and the kindness of God in mind if you fix your eyes on the cross. What shows God's hatred of sin more than the cross? What shows God's love to you more than the cross? If you want to know exactly what sin deserves, you have to understand the cross. If you want to know how infinitely deep the rod of sin reaches, you have to think through all of the implications of the cross. If you want to know how far God was willing to go to rescue you from sin, you have to see his precious son hanging on the cross. For you, this is, this is what it means when we talk about trying to be Christ, or excuse me, cross-centered. So the church... The church, then, is a hospital-like gathering of folks who increasingly recognize our need for the cross-centered life with all of its dimensions, past, present, and future. As we sang a little while ago, what the church isn't, it's not a place for refusing treatment. It's not a place for denying our need. Now, there will be many, and perhaps some are with us today, who will visit the church and do not yet realize uh, the sense of need that they, that they have. And we desire that folks like that, 
that they come and that they're, and that they're with us and that the Lord would open eyes. And, and if that's you, if you've never thought of yourself as having this depth of need before, we're glad you're here. And I would love to talk with you after the service. I'll be sitting right over here. We'll have uh, uh, prayer uh, leaders on either side of the platform. We'd love to talk with you about the need for Christ and the provision that he makes for needy people. But, but for now, for now, when we think about this, this theme of the church as, as hospital, membership is, is about the urgent need uh, that John Owen spoke of when he famously said that we need to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And we all need help in that battle. <clears throat> so secondly, and here's where we are going to turn our attention to Ephesians 4, uh, we need to consider how, how the church gathered is a context for helping one another heal from sin and uh, grow in grace. There are, to be sure, there are individual aspects of our increasing communion with, with Christ. No one can trust for you. No one can repent for you. No one can persevere for you. But, but here's the point of church as hospital. You can do those things with and alongside brothers and sisters in the faith who help you when you're weak and receive from you when you're strong. So, so Jesus is the great physician, right? And he, yes, absolutely, he mediates the definitive cure for sin. But part of his plan is to incorporate us into these healing communities of faith in which we walk together, this, this already not yet curiosity, and when we're which we're simultaneously patients and physicians' assistants, <laughs> right, increasing and facilitating the increase of spiritual health around those among us. Kenny said in an email uh, this week, we were batting some ideas around together. He had more ideas. I took more, more notes. Um, but he said, uh, I thought very helpfully, that, that among other things, sanctification is a team sport. And uh, I was glad this week that, that sometimes preaching is also a team sport because I was trying to get my bearings on an outline and like, I thought about 10 different ways I could go, but I, I just wasn't sure. So this is Kenny's outline, just for, just for the record. I'm preaching Kenny's sermon today. Um, <clears throat> Ephesians 4. What Ephesians 4? I think what we, we're done with that for now, right? Okay. Uh, Ephesians 4 gives uh, some of the, we could call it the, the corporate architecture of sanctification, okay? The corporate architecture of sanctification. Did you notice um, Darren read for us <clears throat> in verses 11 and 12 that the pastors and teachers have an equipping function towards the saints who do the work of ministry. So just real quick in verse 11, he, that's Jesus, gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, which could be translated pastors and teachers. It's not, those aren't two different offices, shepherds and teachers. It's one office, shepherds who teach, pastors who are teachers. So they do their shepherding by means of teaching primarily. Gave them to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. <clears throat> so in the church context, who does the work of ministry? And the answer is, you do, right? If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are one of the saints who's being equipped for the work of ministry. We don't just come 
to church on Sunday to receive ministry, we do receive equipping, right? But to perform ministry in growing and maturing ways. One of the things this means is that pastors absolutely do not do all the ministry in the context of the local church. They can't. It would be unhealthy for pastors if pastors thought it was their job to do all the ministry, it would be unhealthy for them and the congregation. It would be unhealthy for them and the congregation if the congregation thought the pastors were the ones who were supposed to do all of the ministry. The shepherd teachers equip chiefly through means of the word. It's uh, it, 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 it sort of like makes you think of the, the occasion in Acts chapter 6 where we probably see the formation of the office of deacon for the first time. So there's a complaint uh, in, in, this, in this church because the Greek-speaking widows are being neglected in the daily distribution. The Hebrew-speaking widows are being cared for. The, he- the Greek-speaking widows uh, are not. And this is brought to the attention of the apostles. And here's what they don't do. They don't say, well, we'll do all the word ministry and the, the, and the physical care ministry. They don't say we'll do it all. And they also don't opt for a bifurcation and say, well, we'll do one or the other, but I guess both forms of ministry aren't getting done. What do they do? They ask for the Spirit's guidance in, in, in appointing, uh, I, I forget exactly how many, but men full of the Holy Spirit to perform this task, this work of ministry, in which case, in which case both the ministry of the Word and prayer continues to be facilitated and the practical needs Uh, ministry care in the life of the church is getting facilitated. And as a result of that, apparently the Lord favors that decision because the gospel continues to progress, including to the point that a great number of priests, we're told, become obedient to the, uh, become obedient to, to the, to the faith. So, so the growth that happens, right, in our passage, Ephesians 4, in verses 13 down through 16, the growth that takes place is happening, it is happening as the whole church relies together on Christ the head. And did you notice this phrase in verse 16? It happens when each part is working properly, as each part is working properly. In other words, Every saint, every member must contribute to the work of ministry for the church to receive the balanced health care that it needs to receive. There is, again, as Kenny said, there's an undeniable aspect in which this this sanctification is is a team sport. Among other things, when that's happening, when everyone's one is, uh, is, is doing their part working properly, in verse 14, among other things, that provides protection against um, <clears throat> being misled and deceived doctrinally and in other ways. The church is a context. Um, 1 Corinthians 12 is a great passage. We're not going to be able to give our attention to that today, but it's a great passage in which we see the diversity of giftedness unified in the singular body of Christ. Right? That, that recognition reminds us, I'm not designed to have everything I need, and neither are you. Everyone comes to, to, to gather as part of the church, and, and we all contribute needs as well as gifts, which causes us to depend together on Christ the head and then one another as well. Now, that can be a scary thing to open up enough so that others can see where you have needs to receive ministry 
and where you have a capacity and a giftedness to extend and supply ministry to others, right? To let somebody know you well enough to see those things, that can be a, that can be a little bit intimidating, can't it? So one of the reasons why our Grace Group shepherds are going through some discipleship training this fall, uh, speaking of Paul Tripp and Timothy Lane, uh, in, a, in a book called um, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, in which case they're trying to address what they call the ministry gap. In a nutshell, the ministry gap is this. On the one hand, it's very easy to know people in a super casual, passing manner on Sunday morning. Like, you know, I, I'm pretty sure I know your name and I know what team you like. Okay, got it. <clears throat> and then on the other hand is, is, you know, code red, five alarm, uh, emergency, you know, call in the, the professionals and, and, and outsource to, uh, you know, to trained counselor. And, okay, and there are places for both of those, right? But what they're trying to address is the fact that most of life and most of ministry happens in the middle of the continuum, somewhere between, uh, I think I know your name, and code red, five alarm. In, in other words, most of the ministry happens in the context of the church's life together, and so we need to be equipped to be instruments in the Redeemer's hands, or if to change the metaphor for this morning, uh, instruments in the great physician's, the great physician's hands. It's also why this this uh, potential scariness is also why uh, Ray Ortland emphasizes the formula that, that church life should, should consist of the gospel plus safety plus time. Gospel, safety, time. So it, it ain't, it's not happening without the power of the gospel. But in order for the gospel to seep into the cracks of our lives, there has to be enough safety for vulnerability, right? Freedom from uh, being perceived as, as, as unworthy to be present so that I can, I can allow people to know where I actually do need ministry, where I'm not able to watch my back and where I can contribute that to others. And then, of course, time, right? Time is the other factor. This is, um, if you follow Jesus' model of ministry, Paul Miller says that loving another person well while remarkably powerful, you better get comfortable with it being gloriously inefficient. Gloriously, in, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't, it, it, it often doesn't go fast. And when we think about how patient Jesus has been with us, part of having the character of Christ formed in our lives in this corporate context is seeking and striving to be as patient with another person who's learning to walk in the mercy of the Lord, as patient with them as we want Jesus to be with us. I tend to be more patient at times with my own stumbling than with that of, with that of others, and so we're learning to do that as well. One brief point before we take our pause, okay? One last brief point here. The medicine of gathering for worship, the church's hospital that we're talking about today, this is not just for extroverts who enjoy large crowds and fellowship. It is not a personality-specific point. Shout out to my introverts in here. I knew that's how they were going to respond. <laughs> I'm, one, I'm one of you, so I can, I can pick on you. I am a, I am a deeply woven uh, introvert. If I said shout out to my extroverts, <laughs> bouncing off the walls, cartwheels in the eye. Okay, right, okay. Here's the, here's the point, guys. It is not a sin to be an introvert. 
And this morning's ex- exhortation is not that if you are an introvert, you need to become an extrovert. That's not the point. The point is that regardless of personality, we all need to recognize you can't watch your own back. And you have a role to play in watching the backs of your brothers and sisters in the family of faith, in the congregational gathering of hospital-like administration of mercy and grace. So here's where we are thus far, point one. What is spiritual healing, broadly speaking? And point two, what is the corporate architecture that supports the structure of the church as a hospital-like agency? Okay, we're going to pause there. Our worship team is going to come up, lead us in a song, and then I will be back to complete the final point. All right, sometimes uh, <clears throat> good to give younger attention spans a break, right? Sometimes it's good to give my attention span a break. <laughs> That's right, older attention spans too. <clears throat> All right, so the last thing we want to do <clears throat> then this morning is to reflect a little bit on what are some of the specific forms of medicine that we, that we bring to one another as we gather together. So, so corporately speaking, how do we help each other do uh, 2 Corinthians 3, 18. And so I just want to give, uh, this is not, not an exhaustive list, but I want to give uh, a handful of examples, many of which will just be reminders to you of what you already know, what you're already committed to doing, uh, but hopefully there'll be an encouragement as well. Here's the first one. <clears throat> worshiping, worshiping together is a form of medicine, isn't it? Now, obviously you can do this individually, but but uh, there's going to be an end-time corporate celebration 
honoring the name of Jesus at which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so our gatherings on Sunday morning anticipate that kind of communal gathering. Ephesians 5, <clears throat> wonderful passage uh, speaking to this, uh, on the one hand telling us what not to do, on the other hand telling us that on being filled with the Spirit, we are to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your, with your heart. Did, did you know that when you sing in a congregational setting on Sunday morning, you're filling the role of a physician's assistant? You are praising the Lord, absolutely. But Paul tells us here, we're also addressing one another with the medicine of worship. Maybe you have had the experience of coming to church on Sunday morning sometime with faith that is flagging and finding that your faith receives a, a booster, so to speak, just from hearing the worship of those taking place around you. So, if your faith is full, come to church on Sunday. There may be those who need to draft off of your faith. If your faith is flagging, come to church on Sunday morning. You can draft off of the faith of others. It's one of the ways we might even not, not, not even recognize we're performing that ministry for one another, but so often you are. Secondly, as a part of that <clears throat> gathered worship, we carve out weekly time to attend to the Word of God together, right? We assemble around the Word, and, and we, we take the treatment, the medicine of God's Word together. It trains us to do all kinds of things, everything from resisting uh, the, the toxins of self-pity to helping us to ward off worldly philosophies and, and everything in between. We open ourselves up to the surgery of the Word, the surgery of the sword of the Spirit, and we let it nourish us. We let it have its, way, have its way with us. And we're obviously not saying that Sunday morning is the only time we would engage with the Word. We've got to hold this close as individuals too. But when we gather around the Word, the people of God are then unleashed to do the work of ministry, which often occurs in informal settings as a part of the ongoing application. What we've heard on Sunday morning, what we've been reading throughout the week. That's a good reminder that... The, the total quantity of exhortation from the Word and encouragement from the Word that the people of God need, the total quantity isn't provided up here, right? It, it definitely happens up here. We're doing it now. But there's more exhortation, there's more encouragement that's necessary than just what happens from the platform on Sunday morning. These passages from the book of Hebrews reminds us that exhorting and encouraging takes place in a one-another fashion on a regular and ongoing basis before the service, after the service, throughout the week, in the context of grace groups, right? This life-on-life -life administration of the medicine of God's Word. There is it's kind of a, a communal pursuit of spiritual health and, and, and the assurance of salvation. But again, in order to have that, in order to have that sense of assurance, in order to enjoy that communal pursuit, someone's got to know you well enough. Someone's got to know you well enough to observe and celebrate when that growth is taking place and to carefully exhort you when they notice that it isn't, right? So let me offer two further extensions. Here's the first. Join a church. 
officially join a church. Meaning, don't just attend a church. Attending a church is great. It's a great starting place. <clears throat> join a church. Um, Don Whitney's book, Spiritual Disciplines Within the Church, has a great chapter on why you should join a church. We don't have time to unpack all of that here, but it would be worth, it would be worth checking out. But, but, but the, the bottom line is we need communities that covenant together to watch one another's backs, not just occasionally, but because we recognize that we can't do that for ourselves and we need to be doing that for other folks. Joining a church is a form of commitment to receiving this medicine and extending this medicine to others in an ongoing fashion, if you're interested in that. The folks at the kiosk in the back of the lobby can point you out, can point you in the direction of how to sign up for the next new members class. It actually doesn't take place for a few months, but the nice thing about that is being as far out as it is, your calendar probably isn't full. You can go ahead and get it on the calendar. Secondly, to the joining of a church, would be the exhortation to seriously consider, if you're not already, uniting with a grace group or some, at least some other smaller group setting where the focus is explicitly Christian fellowship and discipleship, where there is an intent to get to know one another and to walk with one another and to watch one another's backs. The value of a small group setting like that is it has the capacity to take the medicine down deeper to rub the balm of Christ more thoroughly, right, into one another's souls. It's also the context, not only for learning together, but for doing life together. We wanna to be doers of the word and not merely uh, hearers. The, the virus of sin does not just affect us cerebrally, it affects us as entire persons. And so we need to be able to exercise and put our faith into practice as well. In the last couple of weeks, we've had a QR code in the bulletin that would point you to how to register for, uh, at least to register your interest for grace groups. I don't think that was in the bulletin today, but it's super easy to do. Go to the church's website, click on the ministries tab, and then click on the grace groups button that pops up under the tab. You can register your interest there. It'd be, be something very, very valuable uh, for, the, for the pathway of increasing uh, uh, growth in, in grace. If we had time, we, 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 could, we could just roll these out almost without end, right? We, we could talk about how the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, they're forms of medicine that occur in a communal context, a corporate con we, we don't self-baptize. We've got a baptism service coming up next week. We don't administer the Lord's Supper to ourselves in private. There's a, there's a stirring up of the community. So even if you've already been baptized, the opportunity to witness baptisms as a reminder of your own union with Christ, death, burial, and resurrection, is something that fans the flames of, of faith and, and awakens fresh encouragement. Be worth, be worth prioritizing those kinds of, of celebrations. E even, even praying together, right, comes with the attendant, uh, with a unique pattern of blessing, the Lord says, when two or three are gathered in my name. I know that's a church disciplinary context, but the, the flip side of punitive church discipline is formative church discipline, which is discipleship, which is happening all the time. So I, I, I can't pray corporately on my own. I should absolutely be committed to my prayer closet. <clears throat> but the coming together, right, to unite our hearts in prayer before the Lord, 
has some unique blessings, uh, unique modes of, of medicine that attend that kind of gathering. So the point is not to, to tell you what all the forms of, of medicine are when we gather together in the congregational context, but to remind us that we can't minister to others or receive ministry from others if we walk alone. And you and I were not made to walk alone. To return to the architectural imagery of Ephesians 4.12, it's the saints who do the work of ministry. So consider, right, you're, if you're a believer, you're among them, consider what ministry isn't getting done. What medicine isn't being applied if you are not sharing and receiving ministry regularly in the body of Christ. Now, the good news is, I'm probably preaching to the choir here, right? The fact that, the fact that you guys are here reflects a commitment to gathering for some of the reasons that we have been discussing. So as you go from here today, the question I'd love for you to leave pondering, and perhaps if you are in a grace group, to ponder together later on this evening, the question I'd love for you to leave pondering is, what's the next step? What does the next step look like for you in terms of committing to the church as the corporate context in which we share and receive the ongoing medicine of the gospel? Maybe that is joining a grace group. Maybe that is prioritizing a Sunday evening service the first Sunday of the month. Maybe it's something, my, my point is not to tell you what that thing is, I do not know, but to encourage you as we go from here to prayerfully consider what that might be. And as you take that step, right, for the work of ministry in the context of the body, right, you individually and then you all collectively, may God grant that that would have the function of increasing the health of his body. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful this morning for your painstakingly patient love towards us. We recognize in our clearer-sighted moments how frustratingly inefficient our own progress in grace uh, has been and can be. So we're grateful, Lord, for your unconditional love, for your tender-hearted uh, shepherd love and great physician care. We're thankful that you intend in the administration of your mercies not only to start the task but to complete the task to see us all the way home. And as we receive that good news, Lord, would you strengthen us to have a vision to extend that same kind of care uh, for others. Perhaps, perhaps some of us are, are sitting here even with, with someone in mind uh, who has been particularly difficult to love or particularly frustrating to extend patience towards again and again and again. It's a reminder of uh, all of our neediness, Lord, and so in light of that, we commit our neediness to you and ask that you would nurture uh, our faith as we go from this place with the reflections that we've taken from this message. We thank you for the good medicine offered to us in Christ Jesus and in his word. Amen.